Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bêche, meaning digger. And hello, everybody. Hopefully you can hear me. Tried something a bit different at the start there. You can still see, hear the theme music disappearing behind me as we start another edition of the Cricket Badger podcast. I'm James, as always, um, with you on these podcasts. And it's a pleasure to welcome today author. Um, and um, I, I actually didn't ask you when we were chatting just then where you are in the world at the moment. It's uh, Nicholas Brooks. Um, Nick, how are you? Hi, James. I'm very well. Thanks for having me on. And um, I'm in South London, confined to my bedroom because my cat has the run of the house. And if I try and pod from the living room, he'll be wandering in, biting and scratching and meowing. So, yeah, here in my bedroom in Brooklyn. Well, I'm not sure how badges and cats get on. So um, <laughs> probably, Best probably not to find just, out. Probably just as well. Um, but it's a pleasure to see you um, today. And uh, the reason you're on is because of this. And if I do this now... I'll try and get this up to my uh, camera. An Ireland Thanks, 11, the story of Sri Lankan cricket um, by, there you go, Nicholas Brooks is on there. He's got one as well. I'm, I'm sure you've got plenty. Absolutely, um, but it's, double it's promotion. A good, thick book, this one, Nick. It's um, very well written as well. I, had, I, I, I actually listened to a podcast with James O'Brien, the LBC um, presenter the other day. It is a really good podcast, and he had Fergal Sharkey on, and he was saying to Fergal Sharkey, um, you'll have to excuse me, Fergal. He says, um, I try and make out it's for creative reasons that I've not done a huge amount of preparation for this interview. Uh, because sometimes that actually works if you go and go with the flow of the interview. And I like to do that anyway. But I, I had a flick through this last night. Um, so that's the preparation that I've done. You've very kindly given me some pointers um, on email as well so we can frame the discussion around that. But first of all, Nick, I'd like to ask you, um, I mean, I, I've written... Um, some books in the past and it's quite a 
it's quite a time-consuming um, gig, isn't it, to research them and, and get them out and, and get them in some kind of order. Um, what led you to Sri Lankan cricket and what led you to this subject? I mean, really what led me to Sri Lankan cricket, James, was I think I was sort of inspired by a bit of a gap in the market, which was that every other test nation has had masses and masses written about it and Sri Lanka has had next to nothing um, so I sort of went to the library at Lords, and I was shocked to see this tiny column of Sri Lankan cricket books, uh, sort of five or six. And, you know, I grew up in the 90s. I was born in 1990. And I think that era of the late 90s through to the end of the noughties, a lot of people felt like Sri Lanka were their second team. Yeah. Uh, they played the game with such an incredible style. They had some incredible results. I think they produced some cricketers during that era who the world will never forget, some really unique cricketers. And so, I mean, I was drawn to the subject. There was nothing written about it. And then it was a real bonus that I got to move away from London and spend a couple of years living in Sri Lanka, um, right right by the sea. Because you went out to Colombo, didn't you, to do the research properly and do it on the ground? I did. I was very lucky that I managed to get a gig teaching at St. Thomas's, which is one of Sri Lanka's sort of oldest and most famous cricket schools. Uh, so I was there for just over a year teaching English. They gave me a room sort of which was just overlooking the cricket ground. I had a wonderful view. So I got to see cricket going on pretty much all the time. I've I've read that little bit and I um I'll I'll read you a quote from your book. It might be better in your voice, but I'll read it. <laughs> and when you first went out to Sri Lanka during those first few months in Colombo, I understood a deep love of cricket was one of the island's defining features. As Sri Lanka, uh, uh, you might have to help me with the pronunciation. <laughs> I thought you were going to get Sri Lanka is Rambutan. Bang on. Or Tambili. Tambili, yeah. There we go. <laughs> okay. In a patchwork society, oft riven by differences of class and creed, cricket comes a rare, carries a rare pan-national appeal. And that that is, um, for Sri Lanka, I mean, like everywhere these days, you know, plenty of different religions, plenty of different people living there. And from what you say there, cricket is the um, glue that holds them together. Yeah, it really is. I think anyone who's been to Sri Lanka will see that it's a society with lots of divisions um, of religion, of class, of language. And I think cricket is the one thing that really has a sort of broad pan-national appeal and that everyone from, you know, the sort of guy sitting on the street corner to the richest man uh, absolutely loves and feels kind of defines Sri Lanka. So it's a beautiful place. I mean, I was um, commentating off tube, unfortunately. I wasn't actually in goal when... Um, England were playing there, but some of the um, drone shots they have above that place, absolutely beautiful. And um, I know a few people have been out to Sri Lanka. Yorkshire actually toured there, and I didn't actually manage to get on that pre-season trip, unfortunately. But um, nobody comes back there saying it's a horrible place to go. Everybody comes back raving about it. No, I really think it's the best place in the world to watch cricket, and I sort of strongly advise anyone who gets the chance to go and watch cricket in Sri Lanka too. Um, and I think especially cool is such an iconic ground with the Dutch fort in the shadows and um, right on the sea. You can uh, play ends there at five o'clock. So you can, if you run, you can catch a swim in the sea before sunset after a day, full day of test cricket. You can stay in the fort and walk to the ground. Um, it's a really, really magical place to watch cricket. And the Sri Lankan cricket crowd are incredibly knowledgeable, very engaged, very hospitable Uh yeah, there's cheap beer, there's beautiful beaches, there's um, not a lot of black marks against it. 
That sounds all right to me. Um, you, you mentioned when you when you uh, moved to Colombo to teach, um, the the sea was a slog away from the ground that you were watching your cricket on there as well. The, the, yeah, it's never too far away from a beach, are you? No, you really feel like you're sort of always in touching distance. And yeah, the St Thomas's ground was right uh, on the beach. There was just a railway track separating the sort of ground from the beach, so it was a really magical. Uh, cricket oval fringed by these tall coconut trees and with the sound of the waves lapping that sounds beautiful um it, it, sometimes when you get sportsmen and women and some um, teams they play in the character of the place they represent does the sri lankan team um characterize the island it uh, it comes from I think it absolutely does. I think for a long time it didn't. Uh, probably up until the 1980s, I think there was a lot of sort of fealty to all things English, the MCC coaching manual. And I think when Arjuna Ranatunga took over the captaincy in the late 80s, 1988, I think it was, Sri Lanka really um, started to play their own way and developed a style which I feel is very emblematic of the country. Uh, you look... I mean, people often focus on the bowlers, you know, guys like Murali, Ajanta Mendes, Malinga, who've done it in their own style. And there's um, a kind of Sri Lankan ingenuity about their bowling. But I think we see that in a lot of the batsmen as well. You know, Jaya Saria, Dilshan, even someone like Mahela with the shots that he plays behind square. Uh, I think there's a huge amount of invention and ingenuity in Sri Lankan cricket, which kind of... Um, reflects something about the Sri Lankan spirit and the kind of madcap hedonism that the island has a little bit of. I, I, you mentioned Malinga, the slinger, with his action. Um, I can only remember half the story, but didn't he learn his cricket on the beach? Isn't that part yeah, of his, his um, action is like it is? I think that's the big reason, James, and it's actually probably important to say that for most people in Sri Lanka, cricket is played with a tennis ball in your local sort of alley or the beach or the coconut grove, the game that we know with hard red ball with a seam and pads and whites uh, doesn't exist yeah. for most of Sri Lanka. So yeah, Malinga grew up not far from Gaul in a village called Rathgama, right by the beach. And he played all of his cricket, I think until he was 16, 17 on the beach. So he's got the low arm style and it's where he developed the Yorker because I mean, you can't bowl a good length on sand. It's not a bad net, is it, that, if you're learning your cricket to do it on the beach somewhere nice and sunny, fantastic. No, it's great. And the beach from um, on the sort of west coast of Sri Lanka, it kind of runs all the way up from Gaul to Colombo. So he said when he needed new batsmen to feast on, he'd just kind of wander up the coast. <laughs> <laughs> to feast on. I mean, he did that all of his life, didn't he? Um, the um, Brits arrived in 1796, and that's one of the common trends, isn't it, or common themes of... Um, cricket overseas, India and, and the um, subcontinent, is that it was the English um, or the British that took the sport there at times of colonisation and, and what have you. And I, I, I noted you wrote that um, although that was good and the British out there, a lot of them stayed because it was a wonderful place. And I think they became known as burgers um, in, in Sri Lanka, um, kind of British expats basically living over there. But they did. It didn't necessarily do cricket too much good on the islands because there was a kind of snooty approach to that. That it was for them, not the not the islanders. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's this kind of colonial paradox that you find in all the countries where English English people went and took cricket. Is that they, on one hand, are promoting the game, trying to spread the game, but on the other hand, they're behaving in this kind of superior. 
um, manner, which uh, if they're not kind of uh, willfully excluding the local public, they're putting them off by their sort of um, superiority. So you've got things going on like the Colombo Cricket Club is formed Sri Lanka's first cricket club. It's a whites only club. Planters cricket up in the hill country, uh, I think, stays whites only sort of right through until the um, 1930s, 1940s. So, I mean, it's not great. There were, thankfully, a couple of wonderful exceptions. A guy called Ashley Walker, who moved from England to work at a school royal college and was very uh, influential in bringing cricket to the local boys. And then another man called George Vanderspar, who kind of encourage the scope of the scene to include local cricketers. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. As I say, it's a really, it's a really well-written book, and it's chunky. You know, it's, I imagine this is a tremendous book to take on holiday with you. If you're traveling somewhere sunny, it's sunny in England at the moment, isn't it? Lying on a sun lounge next to the pool, reading that, if you're a cricket fan, would be a very good way to spend your time, I would think. As I said to you um, at the start of this, um, you helped me out a little bit with this interview by, I asked you to give me sort of five or six landmark changing moments of Sri Lankan cricket as it progressed. And you did, you've done that and you've come up trumps and you've given me notes as well on it. The first one, Nick, the opening of the Suez Canal and the whistle stops. Um, tell me a little bit of the background of that. And there's an interesting reason why they were called the whistle stop tours, weren't they? Yeah, there is. So this opening of the Suez Canal, something which ostensibly has nothing to do with cricket in 1869. Um but in those days, and probably now, still ships couldn't travel between England and Australia without a stopover. And Colombo emerged as the natural point of transit. So most ships traveling between England and Australia would stop over for a day or two in Colombo. And then, so I think the Suez Canal was built or completed in 1869. Okay. 13 years later, we get the start of the ashes with Ivo Bly taking his team to Australia. And you've got in the meantime, in Colombo, lots of members of the CCC who are British expats and who maintain connections with the MCC. And so they sort of write a letter saying, you're stopping in Colombo anyway. Why don't you stretch your legs and have a day's cricket? And that leads to the start of a tradition called the whistle stops, which is they were so called because supposedly the ship would stop, let all the cricketers off, and then the captain would whistle from the harbour when it was time for them to get back on and carry on their journey. I take it he wasn't whistling. It was the it was the boat whistling, wasn't it? It was the boat whistling. Yeah, he, he was. <laughs> you need <laughs> he a big whistle, wouldn't whistle. you? Um, and so that carries on, I think, up until 1965. So the first one is in the late 1880s, and then we've got sort of almost a century of English and Australian teams stopping over and playing sort of casual one day games in. Colombo. And I think the important thing to remember is that at that time, Sri Lanka was really kind of marooned in a cricketing sense. Um, mm. The local scene was very small, based around a sort of uh, few Colombo schools and clubs, and there were very few sort of international appearances. So these kind of annual visits from English and Australia 
really kind of nourished the scene. They sort of fueled, uh, I think, Colombo people's cricket imaginations. And they also gave the cricketers a kind of yardstick or a measuring pole to see where they were at. And um, I think oftentimes they found that they were better than they thought they were. That, that was something I was going to ask you, actually, kind of if we broaden that out to current times, obviously COVID played a part in in the international um, fixture list being decimated to some extent, but the likes of um, Afghanistan, Ireland, you know, Scotland, and, and some of the smaller nations, Nepal and, and, and various others that are trying to make their way now on the international stage. You know, we, we talk about, I mean, they've limited World Cup places. Thankfully, that's changing again. But having these opportunities to play the big boys, in inverted commas, gives you that chance to see where you are, to kind of measure whether you're any good or not, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's really important, James. And I think we need more contests in cricket between big and small. I mean, I think it speaks volumes that the last whistle stop, I believe, was in 1965. So at that stage, England was still going to play in Sri Lanka as a favour. And 30 years later, Sri Lanka were world champions. And uh, I mean, that just shows how quickly cricket nations can rise. And on the other side of things, I think they can fall if they're not nourished properly. We saw Kenya beating Sri Lanka at the 2003 World Cup. And I think 20 years later, a repeat of that would be very unlikely. So I think that the ICC has a duty to the smaller nations to uh, try and get them more games against the big boys to encourage big versus small matches. And who knows where cricket can go if we encourage other countries to get involved. We'll come on to a Sri Lankan giant killing a little bit later, won't we, on your <laughs> list. But uh, you, you've put here the, the last line on the notes you've given me here about the opening of the Suez Canal and the Whistle Stop uh, Tours. Um, famous days, Kellart Bowles Grace in 1890, Bradman visited the island in uh, 1930, 1948, Tessera handles West Hall for a century in 1961. So all of those moments, you know, we talk about the yardsticks and seeing those um, famous players coming to your island, but also having some success against them too. Yeah, absolutely. So the first one, which I gave you, James, in 1890, Tommy Kalat, uh, I think he was 19 at the time. He was one of the first Sri Lankan cricketers to be included in the Ceylon side, which up till then had been full of colonists. And I think it's important to mention that Grace was probably the most famous sportsman in Victorian Britain and carried this kind of incredible mystique in an age before radio or TV. Yeah. And him coming to Colombo was big news. The governor ordered sort of stands to be taken down so the ground ghoul face could accommodate the many. And um, this was a huge day out for the Colombo public. And I don't think anyone expected a sort of young Sri Lankan medium pace bowler to get rid of Grace. I think he was on 19 and WG supposedly sort of walked up to him, patted him on the back and then hid in the pavilion for the rest of the day. Uh, and so I think he, that's he didn't he didn't one. do his line of they've come to see me. I'm staying here. No, apparently he was very annoyed because there was a um, a famous explorer. I think it's H.M. Stanley who was sharing the ship with them. And he turned up at the cricket and stole away some of Grace's spotlight. And um, so he was very peeved and he soaked in the pavilion. Um, <laughs> that's that's good. That's a really good story. I mean, W.G. Grace was, um, I would imagine in those days when he just saw grainy pictures of somebody and there's a big man with this big beard the legend kind of grows isn't it because you don't have social media if wg grace had had a twitter feed it might have been a different kind of landscape <laughs> yeah. um, 
N- number two on your list here, unofficial test win over India, Ahmedabad in 1965. Um, so that was a that was a day where against a, an established side, Sri Lanka punched above its weight and again tested itself against a big boy and, and came good. Yeah, um, absolutely, James. I think what's important to say is that um, in the 1960s, the Sri Lankan scene was still totally amateur um, as it really remained through to the 90s. But, you know, these guys had full time jobs. Uh, they were getting in an hour's practice at the end of the day. And this was the first big tour of India that Sri Lanka had been on since 1930. Um, Michael Tessera had just taken over as captain and there was a sense that Sri Lanka were on the charge. This was a team of coming cricketers, but this was still very much a case of amateurs versus professionals. Mm. And I think that's reflected in the kind of travel conditions that Sri Lanka had, um, or Ceylon, I should say, as it was up, still up until 1972. I think they did 15,000 miles of train travel during a three-month tour, or no, sorry, even a six-week tour. Uh, there were no sort of fancy four- or five-star hotels. Everything they stayed in was very much a rest house uh, with sort of flat beds. And they'd been hammered in the first two tests. They were beaten by an innings in uh, Bangalore, I think, the first test. And then in the second test in Hyderabad, they'd batted themselves into a position where they could draw the game only to collapse and then let India score 150 and 30 overs to win the match. So they go to Ahmedabad for the third test. They're 2-0 down. It's been the kind of tour which has, let's say, tested spirits um, Stanley Jayasinghe, who was probably the most famous member of the side at this stage, he'd been playing cricket in England as a uh, county cricketer for Leicestershire. He is able to travel by virtue of doubling up as a correspondent for one of the Sri Lankan dailies. Uh, and he kind of uses that platform as a journalist to sort of uh, criticise some aspects of the team's performance, quite a lot of aspects of the team's performance. And one of the fast bowlers, Norton Frederick, gets sent an extract that's been written about him and he sort of uh, is pretty unhappy and he has Jayasinghe sort of by the scruff of his neck. So things are at a low. Uh, the team are earning 15 rupees a day for a lot of them being on tours, costing them money. And then they get to Ahmedabad and the weather is just terrible. It rains all day. It rains for much of the second day too, but... There are about 20,000 fans in the ground. So Pataudi, the India captain, says to Tessera, why don't we toss? Let's get going. And uh, Pataudi wins the toss. And I think because he's uh, got a fever, there's only about a day left to play. He decides he'll have a bat because he thinks that he'll be able to sit up in the pavilion and come back tomorrow. Um, and that really kind of, those moments changed the course of Sri Lankan cricket history because I think India rack up 180 in their first innings and... By the end of day three, Sri Lanka 144 for seven. Um, Michael Tessera takes the decision that their best chance to win the game is to declare overnight. So sort of um, first thing on the final morning, he declares. India are totally shocked. They're that's, a, that's an adventurous declaration, declaration, isn't it? Really adventurous declaration. Uh, a bit of a masterstroke. Then India, I mean, on a, I think a sort of drying, horrible wicket, a run through for 66. And Sri Lanka knock off the runs to get that first unofficial test win. And that immediately leads to India uh, proposing that they're promoted to become an associate member of the ICC. Uh, And so really, I think uh, that's a massive moment. Uh, They strike that victory, they get recognition. And as the board president says at the time, that puts them on the map of world cricket. 
The um, 1965, the date for that, the you write at the start of the book um, that right up until the, the 1970s, a lot of the team was made up of not necessarily Sri Lankan nationals, but the burgers, the expats that had come over who had taken cricket to the island and were still playing it really for the national team. Yeah, there were a lot of um, Dutch burgers, especially in the side. Uh, you look at, I think, guys like David Hine, Michael Tessera, two of the very influential batsmen in the 60s and 70s who were still burger. And you are still seeing um, burger cricketers even now uh, in Sri Lanka. I think the one that comes to mind is uh, Jeffrey van der Sey. Uh, but so, yeah, the, that burger influence, I mean, which was very strong during the first half of the 20th century with guys, uh, you know, the Kalats, the Deserum, Cecil Horan, these sort of, a lot of the early great cricketers um, were of men of burger stock and um, there are less now, but you do still see the occasional burger cricketer. Well, it's not a bad thing, that is it? You know, that it's um, all part of the, the rich tapestry of the island, I guess. Absolutely. Days. No, I think that's fantastic um, about Sri Lanka is this kind of, yeah, this rich tapestry. You know, it's so rare uh, that an island has had sort of three colonial orders. And then you, uh, I mean, it just, Sri Lanka just feels like this incredible melting pot with influences coming from all over the shop. Um, and I think it's great. The, uh, I mentioned before there was a, the giant killing, um, which is the next uh, one on your list, the win over India at the World Cup in 1979, which ultimately led to Sri Lanka getting test status. That, that you know, of the ones that I think about from from a distance, that seems to me to be the real pivotal moment where everybody sat up and, and properly took Sri Lankan cricket seriously. Yeah, I think that was absolutely massive. I think it's worth me saying, James, that Sri Lanka could have maybe got test status in 1968 when they were meant to tour England, but that tour fell apart because the selectors picked themselves. And then uh, Sri Lanka were really growing. So, sorry, go back to that bit. Say, uh, that, say, so say that again. The selectors picked themselves. I should um, say that one of them was the wicketkeeper in the team, but he decided to promote himself to captain. And the chairman of selectors who had been, uh, you know, elected a couple of years earlier and promised that he was out, uh, decided that he was back in. I think, you know, in those days, a trip to England was a bit of a rare treat and it seems to have, enticed like forbidden fruit shall we say i i always used to think when ed smith was the chairman of selectors for england that he, <laughs> one day he was going to pick himself but never actually got around to it but uh, obviously in sri lanka it was a different story judy was boring hello then judy discovered chumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy the Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That, that win over India at the World Cup, though, that, that's where you start to believe, isn't it? That's where you start to think, we've tested ourselves, we've had all of this history, but all of a sudden now we're on the probably one of the biggest stages in the world and we've won. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, Sri Lanka had really been growing through the 70s. And if anything, it was the sort of um, foreign exchange concerns and their lack of cricket infrastructure that held them back. But then you get to the 79 World Cup and a huge win over India, you know, a team with Gavaskar at the top of the order. Mm. And I think that that's the point when I think everyone had known that Sri Lanka were good for a while. I mean, they put up a good fight against Australia in 75 at the World Cup. But I think that's really the moment when 
it's now undeniable. The first time an associate has beaten a test team at the World Cup, um, it's a huge win. And actually, Sri Lanka were a smidgen away from qualifying for the semi-finals of that tournament. Uh, there were issues over the squad that was picked. So, I mean, if they weren't quite at full strength, they might have uh, done even better. And I think from then on, you really know that Sri Lanka are heading towards test status. And the final sort of um, piece of the puzzle is Gamini Disanayaka becoming board president in 1981. He was a very high-ranking member of the UNP government, and he basically has the means to do stuff that other people can't. So he can convert Asgiria into a test ground very quickly. Mm. He can, you know, lobby the English more effectively. And so, yeah, but that... um, Win against India is sort of that pushes Sri Lanka. I mean, I said to Jared Kimber the other day, it was a giant leap. It takes them from sort of here to here. And um, yeah, yeah it, they were suddenly undeniable. Just going back to the, the Burgess thing and the you know, British expats and their descendants still being on the island and playing the cricket. I'd imagine as that's kind of transitioned to being, um, you know, longer term Sri Lankan nationals playing the game. As supporters on the islands, when you can see one of your own actually succeeding as opposed to somebody else that maybe doesn't look quite the same as you, that has a big impact, doesn't it? Well, yeah, absolutely. But I think it's um, sort of important to say, James, that probably from, uh, you know, the, the, the burgers uh, sort of mixed and blended. And so uh, and it was largely the Dutch burgers who um, had kind of mixed into society. And so they were kind of... Um, it wasn't quite like, you know, there were sort of three or four Englishmen in the team mm. by the 60s and 70s. I think well, it was... Where, where does the word burger come from? B-H-E-R-G-E-R, isn't it? B-U-R-G-H-E-R. I have absolutely okay. no idea where that term comes from. It's a very from. strange would, name, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, would have, I would have thought it's a Dutch term, but mm. I couldn't say with any confidence. I keep thinking of beef burger every time I say it. <laughs> um, so they've had the win over India at the World Cup in 1979. They get test status in 1981. And uh, I'm unfortunately an old enough vintage to remember that. Um, <laughs> um, and Lords 1984. Now that yeah. was huge, wasn't it? That was massive. That was because I think you get a tendency where um, probably even now with you know Ireland when they played at Lords against England, um, and Ireland um, bowled England out quite cheaply at the start of that match, but still lost. You get the impression that the kind of bigger nations. I'm not saying don't take it seriously, but just think they're going to win. Sri Lanka rock up at Lords, the home of cricket, all eyes on the match, and they end up with the victory. Yeah, I think it's fair to say, James, it's a very good point that for the first few years of having test status, you're still a minnow, really, aren't you? And you're still disregarded. And so Sri Lanka rock up in August. I mean, they've been around in England for a while, playing lots of the counties, while England have been getting hammered 5-0 by that just remarkable West Indies side. I remember that well. Yeah, and so I guess, I mean, you probably remember the sort of a bit of the narrative that the Sri Lanka test was a chance to restore a bit of pride and a bit of dignity after a long, hard summer when I think about 40 different cricketers had played for England. And... um, Oh, that was that was a summer where if you had a favourite cricketer and you were hoping he was going to get picked by for England by the end of the summer he had but he had done and his career had finished as well. <laughs> and um, I think that the uh, the thing the thinking was that Sri Lanka were going to get hammered. There were rumours going around that the groundsman had been told told to make an absolute road just to prolong the shellacking essentially to get five yeah. days of cricket. Uh, so you've got the English probably 
weary and taking the challenge a little lightly versus the Sri Lankan team who, you know, haven't played many tests outside of Asia and are given one test. And, you know, uh, I think it was Siddharth Wetamuni, the opening batsman, who said to me, you know, for us, this is like going to Wimbledon. This is a huge, huge moment. And, um, you know, they make hay in the sunshine. Siddharth Wetamuni bats and bats and bats and scores 190, uh, which I think in terms of time remains the longest innings ever played at Lord's. Dalit Mendes. He he, he ground that out, didn't he? He really did. He really ground that out, but they kept kind of bowling wide to him. And I think thinking that he was just going to leave it alone, then he just lent on these sort of gorgeous square drives. And then a young runner, Tunga, scores at 80 odd. And by the time Dalit Mendes comes in, there, I think Sri Lanka are 200 for four. And then he tucks into both and with real glee. Mm. Uh, Dalit, for those who don't know about him, was about five foot three, but he loved to hook. And I think balls were disappearing left, right and centre. It's funny uh, how, this, how some of the smaller batters are the, the best hookers because I guess it, it doesn't have to be that short to bounce high to them. So they get used to playing that shot early, don't they? Yeah, I mean, the same was said about Aravinda, who was a similar height. And I think that, you know, to other batsmen, what might be, good length or a back of a length is a practically a bouncer to him. So, mm. I mean, it really, there's, uh, bowlers have to change their lengths and there's less margin for error, I think, when you're bowling at a guy yeah. who's um, a little bit shorter than you're used to. I, I, um, I remember being really disappointed when Wetamuni didn't get his double hundred that, in that match. Yeah, I, I don't think you were the only one because uh, I don't know if you know Uncle Percy James, who's kind of Sri Lanka's greatest fan. He's been following the team around with a flag uh, for probably 50 odd years now and he was getting ready to uh run inside the boundary rope and run around the pitch and so he was disappointed but he said maybe it was lucky because he thinks he would have ended up in jail (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what i mean how was that received back home that victory against england i mean the fact it's england as well the kind of colonial past of the island too i mean that's a a major scalp isn't it it's a it was a huge scalp i mean i think it uh, is important to say that contests against England always carry a little bit of extra kind of spice because of that history. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, just the performance, even though Sri Lanka didn't get the win and it was a draw, you know, Delete Mendes being a, a sort of smidgen away from test centuries, uh, sorry, twin centuries, he would have become only the second man to do that, I think, at Lords after George Headley. Uh, three centurions in the game and they really dominated England from start to finish. Uh, I think there was also... You know, lots of the press remarked on the contrast between the uh, beauty of Sri Lanka's batting and the utterly charmless way that England were playing. Uh, I think it was a, a moment where the team's sort of perception of themselves changed overnight and also the image of this Sri Lankan team. I mean, Wetamuni was named one of Wisdom's five. Uh, there were just, you know, the press, the British press were really effusive and glowing about the way that Sri Lanka had played cricket. And I think there was a sudden awareness uh, of sort of Sri Lanka's cricketing worthiness. Mm. And, and I guess it changes their own self-belief as well. You know, all of a sudden, you hear a lot of people that it's imposter syndrome, basically, isn't it? You kind of you take that step up. Are we good enough? Can we do this? Yes, we can. Totally. And I think that this was really the moment that Sri Lanka got over that imposter syndrome. And you get the first test victories um, at home against India in 85 the next year, and then another one in Pakistan or against Pakistan in 86. And um, yeah, I think that, that those days at Lords in 1984 were the uh, real first time when Sri Lanka knew that they belonged and understood that they were really, really good. 
The um, that then translates to a little bit of a run of success, then doesn't it? That belief, the first win under the belt, leads to a few more over the next few years. But the next, uh, the next um, one on your list is um, one of the biggest of all, of all, isn't it? Really, um, number five on your list, Australia, nineteen ninety five, and then the ninety six World Cup, and it, it was from memory that was a little bit of a shambles wasn't it and then turned into glory indeed i thought i had to ban these two together james because they were um i mean temporally they were pretty close i think the world cup kicked off in march and sri lanka came back from australia in january and as and you your, say your, just... your book starts with this as well doesn't it the um the, the shambles part the shambles part, Murley being nobled on boxing day by daryl hare which is just a huge moment um because it bonds the Sri Lanka team together massively. I yeah. think that feeling of, you know, everyone's against us, our backs to the wall. And I think in earlier times, there would have been, uh, the natural response would have been for Sri Lanka to kind of bend over and uh, send Murley home, play sort of, uh, you know, diffident and go along with what Australia wanted. But this was a time when Arjuna Ranatunga said, we're absolutely not doing that. Murali's been bowling for a long time. There's nothing wrong with his action. I'm going to stand by my man. And I think you see a bit of steel, uh, a little bit of extra steel coming into Sri Lankan spines um, as a result of uh, Murali being no bald and the way that uh, Sri Lanka responded to that. Arjuna Rangatunga, he's a big figure, isn't he, in that transition from being effectively amateur to being test uh, test and World Cup uh, winners. He, he had that steel. He led them really well. I mean, and, and he wasn't particularly a sporty-looking fellow. I remember watching him and uh, quite a squat, round kind of figure, wasn't he? But, yeah, really did lead that team brilliantly. No, I mean, he, he was absolutely huge, James. I think you're right to say that he wasn't necessarily the livest. And I think he was pretty un-Sri Lankan. I always think that Sri Lanka is a fairly conflict-averse place and quite a conflict-wary people. But Arjuna just took no shit from anybody. And, um, <laughs> you know, in an age where I think um, a lot of teams were kind of deferential towards Australia and were trying mm. to mimic what they did, Arjuna went out of uh, his way to really kind of... Uh, get under their skin and uh do, do you think that's a a thing of the sort of south asian teams because you're seeing that quite a lot with india now um yeah what how who are you to tell us how to play test cricket we're going to play test cricket our way that kind of thing and i i just i, I seem to think i mean speaking to quite a lot of indian supporters around the uh, the england series recently it does seem to come from that colonial history of, you know, you've always told us what to do. You've always been in charge of us. You're not anymore. We're going to tell you how to behave kind of thing. And we're going to play cricket our way. Uh, yeah, I think you're right, James. I think it's not unfair to say that the Asian sides were bullied for a long time. And uh, there's a story in Sri Lanka where, you know, uh, everyone else was sledging. And uh, I think it was the assistant manager at the time said, what's sludging? He didn't even know what it was because Sri Lanka just didn't do that until yeah. they played gentleman cricket until... Ramtunga came around and said, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to be pushed around. And I don't think it's unfair to suggest that there was a kind of racial element or racial undertones in it. You know, there were reports on that 95, 96 tour of Sri Lanka uh, coming up against sort of racial elements. And I think this team stood tall. They stood proud. They said, we're going to get back at you. You know, at the same time, you've got this uh, powerful symbol of Jayasuriya and Kalawitarana being installed as the new opening pair together on that tour. And 
I mean, kind of changing the way that teams go about cricket, attacking in the power play. I know we'd seen great batch of both them use as pinch hitters before, but the idea that those first 10 overs really were to score as many runs as you can, I think that changes uh, is a huge shift in cricket's landscape. And then the kind of openers who we see appearing in the late 90s from around the world. You know, we've got guys like Afridi, Sewag, um, Gale, you know, Kershaw Gibbs, um, Gilchrist and White Bull, yeah. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Would it be fair to say that, you know, in terms of maybe the three pivotal men in Sri Lankan cricket in that period of transition when they were stepping up onto the big stage... We mentioned Ranatunga and his leadership was was crucial. That then in the batting stakes you've got Jayasuriya, who was just crazy good and fantastic to watch, and maybe made some of his um, teammates think, "Well, if he can do it, I can. I can follow in his footsteps." And then obviously Murali coming in most test wickets and winning matches on his own at times, wasn't he? Um, they're three very key parts of that transition, aren't they? Three absolutely crucial parts of that transition. The other one who I would throw in there is Aravinda, who had been in the Sri Lanka side for a long time. I think he first played in 1984, but he'd been kind of the baby of the side. I think he was, I mean, he was always a lyrical batsman, but he used to play these sort of beautiful 30s and then get out doing something stupid. Um, That's what I I did all the way through my club career. (laughs) That was a good day for me, so I can't chastise him (laughs) too hard. Um, But no, he he went off to Kent in 1995 and had a wonderful year. And I think he came back kind of hungrier for runs, understanding that he was the uh, linchpin of this Sri Lanka team. And then, you know, I think he scored seven test centuries in 1997. And, you know, he made a really crucial 60-odd in the World Cup semi and then 100 in the World Cup final. And so I think he, having Jaya and Aravinda kind of at the heart of that batting lineup in the late 90s was a really, really daunting prospect. And I think... Uh, I mean, I've gone away from Sanath, but I think it's fair to say that Sanath was a real, real trailblazer. Um, he was just batting like other people weren't. And I think in 1997 or 98, he was the third highest run scorer in ODI cricket and he scored a, a strike rate of over 100. And just no one else in the list is getting close to him in terms of strike rate. And so the kind of room for manoeuvre that his innings gave Sri Lanka uh, really was quite profound. I, I was actually at um, Canterbury. Yeah, I'm just actually, while you were speaking there, I was just Googling um, the game. Derek Aslett, who's a friend of the podcast, um, he made 221 not out in the Kent second innings to see the match through to a draw. But that's the first time I'd ever really, I'd seen Sri Lanka live. And that Sri Lanka team, I remember watching them and thinking, this, this, this lot are all right. You've got Weta Mooney opening the batting, Von Hart as his opening partner in that match, uh, Diaz. Um, De Silva, who you've just mentioned, Mendis, Ranatunga, Karupa, uh, DS De Silva, um, some really good names in that side. And they really gave Kent a, 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 really, a good match um, on that occasion. I think the pitch fairly flattened out and Derek Aslett played really well to see the draw through. But that, yeah, that that was the, um, the embryonic sort of side of the one that went on to become household names, really, weren't they? 
Indeed, yeah. And I think, um, I mean, some great batsmen that you listed there. I think Sri Lanka have always had batting strength. I mean, even if you go back way before test status to the 30s and 40s, guys like Deserum and Sathasivam um, were, you know, I think really world-class. And then we had Tanakun in the 70s, who I think was the same. And um, Dalit Mendes is the one who you mentioned from there, James, who really stands out to me because he had been around from the early 70s. He was part of the first World Cup side. He was there as captain throughout the 80s. And then he was the team manager for much of the 90s. He was um, part of that brains trust in 96. Uh, and so I think his fingerprints are kind of all over those early years of test status. I'm, I'm getting quite self-indulgent here, just concentrating on this match at Canterbury. <laughs> <laughs> just going back, it's just going down memory lane. Um, it's a... Uh, Sri Lanka had made 340 in the first innings. Bold Kent out for 182 with Diaz de Silva taking a, a fifer. And um, John, I think, took four for 142. He did. Um, then, um, sorry, five, he took five as well. So the 10 wickets share between those two. And second time around, they take a, a couple of early wickets and then Derek Aslett dug in. But it was, as I say, my first proper exposure to that Sri Lankan team and it, it had a really nice feel that match as well I mean you talk about sort of the deferential sort of side of it and then becoming a bit stronger but they, they played hard but there was a um I, I was only a kid at the time I was getting autographs and they were all really nice to approach and it was a very friendly kind of county game that oh it's great to hear and I think that Sri Lanka have always been great to watch even when they weren't winning mm. I think uh Ranatunga got 100 in that game played really, oh, really? Well. and he must yeah. have been um sort of barely out of school he must have been 18 or something he was batting at uh, number six and he got 118 and I mean he was such a talented player it's um a real mystery as to how he only managed to score four test hundreds I think that mm. he's one who you feel maybe uh sacrificed personal gains in the pursuit of kind of higher glories uh and really put, made himself a captain first Getting back, though, to your um, fifth point, rather than um, dwelling on Canterbury in <laughs> 1984 for the entire podcast, <laughs> um, there was a bombing, wasn't there, um, which uh, led to Australian and West Indies boycotting um, playing against Sri Lanka. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and the wheels were coming off to some degree, weren't they? The wheels were coming off. So the central bank bombing, which I think is probably the most scarring event of the civil war thus far, uh, happens in Colombo just before the World Cup's about to start. And so the Australia and the West Indies pull out. They refuse to um, come to Sri Lanka. And there's sort of talk that Kenya and Zimbabwe might do the same. And if that had happened, it just would have been a total disaster and completely thrown Sri Lanka's World Cup campaign off the rails. Um, but they managed to persuade sort of uh, the, the World Cup in 96 was in Sri Lanka, India and Pakistan. And so there was a sort of joint committee called PILCOM and India and Pakistan agreed to send a uh, a combined team to play in Sri Lanka on the eve of the World Cup and show everyone that it's safe. And I mean, this was really hurriedly organised. I think all the um, sort of, you know, sight screens have been painted black and then had to be repainted white so the game could happen. I think, you know, Wazim Akram forgot his kit and had to borrow off Azaruddin. And it was the first time Indian and Pakistani cricketers, I think, had played in the same side since partition. So this was a real show of Asian solidarity. Uh, the cricket kind of took second fiddle, I think, to the feel of um, yeah. communality. And that potentially stopped Sri Lanka's World Cup campaign from falling off the tracks. And, and they weren't expected to win that World Cup, were they? 
They weren't, I think, as soon, um, probably three or four months before they were 66 to one or something like that. And I think if you look at the teams at the time, certainly England, Australia, uh, India, Pakistan, West Indies, South Africa, New Zealand. So that's seven who I think all would have been fancied more than Sri Lanka going into that tournament. We'll move on to number six. You've, you've got seven points and we're on to number six of the seven. It's fascinating this. I'd, I'd love going down memory lane and and, and learning a bit more about uh, stuff that I think I know and then realise I don't. <laughs> um, but uh, Murali's breakout at the Oval in 98. Now, I remember this very well um, because, again, England going to that, that test, um, very much favourites to win. And uh, Murali tied them in knots, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. A massive moment. And um, I think the first thing that's important to say is a lot's changed since 1984. Uh, you know, Sri Lanka have gone on and become world champions, but they're still given the same treatment. They're still, mm. it's one test at the end of a summer. I think England have had a tough test series against South Africa and they're, you know, going to head off to the ashes that November, December. And I think that it's probably not unfair to say that mines weren't really on Sri Lanka as much as they could have been. Um Murali put it to me. He said, we were not regarded. Um, you know, that snobbery kind of stung. And England probably weren't too pleased with the conditions they got. You know, it's hot, it's dry, it's getting dusty. It's probably not a million miles away from Colombo. Uh, Ranatunga really surprised everyone by batting first. And his reasoning was that if Sri Lanka had batted first, England would have to follow on and that way Murali wouldn't have got a rest and he was going to have to shoulder a heavy workload if they were to win. I mean, it's the most kind of audacious reasoning uh, at a toss imaginable. Um, And I think it looks like it backfired. England made 450, I think, in their first innings. And I think from that position, never imagined to uh, lose the game. But Jaya Surya and Aravinda batted so fluently and scored at almost four and over as Sri Lanka makes 600 that they put a win back on the table and then Murali really runs through um, England having taken seven in the first innings he takes nine in the second innings the only other wicket is a run out of Alex Stewart and um, yeah Sri Lanka complete victory they by 10 wickets I think they chase off the 40 that they need in sort of five overs uh, Jaya hits a six which is you know, still in Sri Lankan folklore because I think both feet were off the ground and he just sort of swung. Um, and yeah, I remember that, yeah. It's a moment which I think for all the success that Sri Lanka have had in the 90s, they were unreliable as a test team. They'd hardly won matches outside of Asia and, you know, they hadn't won a lot of tests consistently. And I think that kind of is a springboard, which it's another moment where I think the team's image of themselves changes as well as their broader perception and they go on to be hugely successful in test cricket during the noughties I think uh when Jaya Suri is captain I think he has about a 47 percent win percentage which is better than a lot of good teams in the history of cricket and then Mahela's I think is even better so Sri Lanka kind of take that make that transition from sporadically winning but producing lots of good cricket to winning more consistently although I would caveat that with They've never been able to win consistently outside of Asia, which is probably the mm. final frontier. Would would it be unfair to say or fair to say that without Murali, it wouldn't have been possible? Because obviously they've got arguably the best spin bowler that the world has ever seen. And 
I mean, they've got him, so he's part of their team. So it's you know, he's, you can't change history. They had him in their side, but without him, it would have they wouldn't have been the same side, would they? No, I think that's totally fair to say, James. And he took you know eight hundred Test wickets. Um, I think without Murali, Sri Lanka would have struggled to take uh, twenty wickets consistently. And I mean, I think from nineteen ninety two when he comes into the side, they have a way of winning at home. And it's important to say, and I think it's a good message for all spinners, the amount that Murley improves between 92 and 98 mm. is just drastic. Uh, you know, he always had the big turn because of the physiology, but he really develops a huge amount of craft and guile. He learns to master sort of drift and dip. He gets much better at bowling around the wicket and he becomes a match winner in all conditions. Um, no, I think it's, uh, you know, without his wickets they would struggle to win especially away from home and I think during his career which you know from 92 to 2010 he was injured a fair bit but he still I think bowled a third of all of Sri Lanka's overs in that time uh, which just tells you you know you know one thing people forget about Murali is that he was an incredibly hard worker in that game at the Oval he delivered more overs than any modern bowler has in a match and you know he was tireless he was happy to just bowl and bowl and bowl until the wickets came and um you know, I think I wonder if there's ever been a more kind of influential cricketer in history in terms of match winning. I mean, he'd, yeah, he'd bowl all day, wouldn't he? If, if you he let him. Would, you know, it was really hard to get the ball out of his hand. And I think yeah. it's strange to say of a guy who took 800 wickets, but I think his mindset was kind of uh, primarily defensive. He liked to strangle batsmen and take away their scoring options and um, really the slow, tormenting assassination, which. Uh, Mark Butcher got at the Oval in 98. I think he was sort of, you know, Murali yeah. coming around the wicket to him as a left-hander and balls were just fizzing past the outside edge. And, um, you know, there were men crowded around the bat having a giggle. Uh, and poor old Butch, uh, I think he said that his reputation as a player of spin was kind of decimated after that. <laughs> a few people were, I think, by uh, Mitai Murilitharan. Um, I saw the, they, there was a cracking little piece that Sky did with him on the last tour of that England had to Sri Lanka where... I think it was Rob Key and Nasser Hussain um, facing Murali on a on a on a on a local track, and um, he'd put put cones down or a, a coin down or something, and he'd not bowl for ages, and he still was able to just be accurate setting up Nasser Hussain, who obviously hasn't played for ages either. But you could just see he's still got the talent. You could probably roll him out for a county, and he'd still take sixty wickets in a championship season even now. Because he's, um, it's just, it, it's just in him, isn't it? And it's, I mean, it's the point I made about not having him. But you can't say that about sport, can you? Because you know, Bradman's Australia wouldn't have been invincible probably without Bradman in the side. You know, people are key cogs of sides, aren't they? And uh, you can't, ch- you can't change that. I mean, your final point, Nick, um, in terms of the the changing moments of Sri Lankan cricket, number seven. Uh, we'll call it because that's the number that's next to it. <laughs> Mahela Jai Wardner and Tom Moody and their relationship in taking Sri Lanka on um, and making them, I guess, consistent and more determined and well run. Uh, indeed, James. And I think uh, what's important to say is that Mahela only took over as captain, I think, probably around the start of 2006 because Marvin Atapatu had a long standing back injury. So he's really there as a stand-in captain. Um, but he and Tom Moody, I think, although they couldn't be two more different-looking blokes, they are two absolute peas in a pod who both um, are very hard workers and a, they really get the most out of their charges out of the team. I think Tom uh, is kind of the 
prototypical uh, coach you want in Sri Lanka because, again, he's a pretty tough talking guy. He didn't take any nonsense from the administration. He kind of shielded players from the uh, politics which can often insinuate uh, themselves mm. into Sri Lankan cricket. And then you've got Mahela, who I think has an incredible cricket brain. You see the success that he's had with Mumbai Indians and Southern Braves coach. And he's also kind of, I said in that book, I think he's a natural democratizer and a really good man manager. And you just see the team sort of go on leaps and bounds. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I had um, three or four days in the company, Mahela, on and off um, in UAE. And such a nice fella. You know, quite, quite quiet, isn't he? You know, polite, um, interesting. But as you say, you know, he was out there, he was wearing a number of caps. He was working in the media out there, but he was also making notes for the Mumbai Indians of any players that he saw um, and just basically just breathes cricket, doesn't he? I really think he lives and breathes cricket. And um, I think he thinks a lot about the game. And mm. you see, I think the real turning point is where Sri Lanka come to England in summer of 2006. And they come to England in a bit of a state. I think uh, Jayasuriya's sort of retired, although he's going to come back. Atapatu's out. So really they're without a kind of noted opener. And they go way down at Lords. They have to follow on. And then they produce this kind of masterful fight back. Mahela gets 100 and I think six others score 50s. And they rescue this test from really a pit of despair. Um, draw the test series and then go on to completely smash England 5 0 in the ODIs. And that just seems like a kind of springboard because then they go back to Sri Lanka and have a series against South Africa very soon after, which is where Sanger and Mahela produced this kind of whatever it was, 620 odd run partnership that uh, I feel really uh, kind of changes again their perception that, that they sort of storm the bastion of the greats of cricket. And this is the same time where Sangakara gives up the gloves. And I think from the middle of 2006 to the end of 2007, he averages 150 and becomes the number one batsman in the ICC test rankings. And then you've got you've got talents breaking out around this period. You've got guys like Malinga, Ajanta Mendis coming through. Dilshan suddenly has this just crazy uh, late career bloom where he's kind of batted six for a long time and not done very much. And then suddenly he's scoring hundreds just left, right and centre. And I think Sri Lanka... And inventing the scoop shot. Inventing the dill scoop, yeah. Um, Again, kind of, you know, these innovations which change cricket. And then Sri Lanka as a white ball team just go on the most incredible run you know you've got finals in the 2007 world cup the 2009 t20 the 11 world cup the 12 t20 and then they finally win the t20 world cup in 2014 but so to go to you know five finals in the space of seven years uh i think was really uh quite a startling achievement i I, they're in in transition now though aren't they um they've got a, a number of good players um, they seem to roll out slow left arm spinners that can destroy England at will. Um, but uh, that, I'd probably say the same about every country in the world um, when it comes to England's batting. But it's difficult, isn't it? Because you've had that 
wonderful um, decade or more when you have the likes of um, Sangakara, Jaya Wardner, Malinga, um, Dilshan, you know, Sanath Jayasuriya, all of these, um, Chaminda Vass was a tremendous player. All of those greats of the game, and certainly greats in Sri Lanka, legends in South in Sri Lanka, are hard to re- hard to replace. I mean, we've seen this similar kind of thing in in Australia side, haven't we? When the Haydens, the Pontings, the um, Warns, and um, Gillespies and and McGraths all disappeared, yeah, you're going to go down a level, aren't you? Because sometimes the once in a century, once in a in a millennia kind of player. Yeah, totally, James. I think you're right to strike on the fact that, you know, Sri Lanka lost a lot of these guys in a pretty short space of time. Mm. You know, Vas, Murli, Dilshan, Sanga, Mahela. It's hard to sort of uh, cope with those losses. And there's also, I think, the cracks were papered over because of how enduring these cricketers were. I mean... And, and Murli as well. We haven't mentioned Murli. And Murli, of yeah. course. Yeah. Exa- and I mean, Murli, I think, went on, you know, till he was, what, probably 38. And mm. Sangakara was no doubt a better player in his 30s than he was in his 20s. So, you know, the, their ability to endure kind of meant that the problems which maybe were starting to surface 10 years earlier weren't fully dealt with because you had four or five great cricketers who could kind of just paper over those cracks. And I think, you know, we've had good batsmen since Sangakara. Angelo Matthews has scored 6,000 test runs at about 45. Uh, you've had Chandamal, you've had Karuna Ratne. But I don't think that there's been a batsman since Sangakara which has who's taken on that kind of daunting presence. Uh, I think I think as well, when you've got a Jay Wardner and a Sangakara on the same side, they bounce off each other. They become their own, um, they're almost competing to score the most runs in the side and sharing big partnerships and there to support each other. When you've only got the one in an, in an Angela Matthews surrounded by maybe lesser lights, it's harder work, isn't it, for him? Because he's got no support there. If he fails, then the, the, the wheels potentially come off. So when, when you've got a team full of greats, it's easier isn't it very much so you need a couple of them because you know you can't no one scores 100 every innings when you miss out you need someone else there to pick up the slack and even Bradman fails sometimes um indeed and I think uh you know also in terms of wicket taking you know the real question was how Sri Lanka were going to take 20 wickets once Morley went and then you had this kind of bizarre incredible situation where Rangana Herath re-emerges having taken you know a handful of wickets by age 30 and uh then to, to take a huge amount of wickets and carry Sri Lanka I think they were they sort of lost that uh recipe for winning tests I've been you know I feel this what we've seen in the last couple of months where they won a test against Australia lost a test against Pakistan which they maybe should have won and kind of you know, things went wrong on the last couple of days on a slowing pitch, but then they won another test against Pakistan. To win two of the three and to be in strong positions in all of them, that's the most consistent stretch of cricket I can remember from Sri Lanka for a long time. So that's well, really I, I've said it. I've said it a few times, Nick. I think Chris Silverwoods is a very good coach. Um, yeah, I think his period with England um, isn't reflective of his strengths as a coach. It was through COVID, the majority of it, and it was tough. Um, I think Sri Lanka is actually a very good fit for Chris Silverwood. I think it's possibly a little bit more relaxed over there and he can take control of that team and just run it more like a county side to some degree. Um, I very much agree, James. I wasn't too optimistic about the appointment off the back of the ashes, but I think he's done a wonderful job so far. I think uh, his sort of nice guy vibe, this easygoing thing, I think chimes really well with the Sri Lankan players. And I think you've seen 
uh, senior guys who were maybe before Silverwood took over, you thought they might be starting to sort of move to the fringes of the side. Someone like Achandamala or Kusal Mendes. Those guys have been uh, given some security. I think that Silverwood's mm. shown them you have a place here and they've re-flourished. At the same time, you've got younger members of the team coming in, doing really well. Someone like uh, Dunith Walalage or even an older guy like Prabhat Jayasuriya, who's come in at 30, 31 and taken a boatload of wickets. Um this is something interesting because I'm noticing a lot in Sri Lankan cricket at the moment that guys who aren't necessarily the youngest, um, I'm thinking of cricketers like Banuka Rajapaksa, uh, Dushmanta Chamira and Prabhat Jasuriya are taking sort of what seems like big leaps around the age of 30. Um, I was not particularly optimistic about the uh, direction Sri Lankan cricket was going in when I left Sri Lanka a couple of years ago, but now I'm feeling a lot more positive and yeah. I think they've got the next few months are going to be crucial for how this team's seen with the Asia Cup and the T20 World Cup. But I think they've got a really, really dynamic bowling attack. And if they can get enough runs on the board, I feel they can surprise some teams at those tournaments. I totally agree. I think going to that T20 World Cup, there's obviously a couple of favourites in England who are tailing off a little bit in terms of white ball, but Australia, India will be there. But then you've got West Indies, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, New Zealand. There's a whole host probably seven or eight sides that could easily win that trophy if everything goes right for them and they get a fair wind and a little bit of luck and all the things you need to win a tournament. Who knows? It could be Sri Lanka's uh, year again. Um, final question for you, uh, Nick, before I let you disappear. Um, I looked online for the top 10 Sri Lankan cricketers of all time. I'll read you out this list. Um, I mean, this is off a random site, so this isn't anything authoritative at all. But Sanath Jayasuriya was number one. Uh, Mitai Muralitharan was number two. Kumasangakara, three. Mahela Jayawardena, four. Alavanda de Silva was fifth. Um, Lassith Malinga, sixth. Chimandivas was seventh. Arjuna Rangatunga was eighth. Ninth was Marvin Atapatu. And tenth was Angelo Matthews. Um, Hard to disagree with some of that, but there is always with things like that a little bit of a recency bias. Your book, which I'll put alongside the uh, graphic there, big chunky book that lists uh, Sri Lanka all the way through the years. Is there anybody from the bygone day that could maybe, because it, they, they may they may not have been playing Test matches at the time, and they may not have had the um, the appeal in the country at the time, but who was so that was really good at, th at that stage that would never be on a modern day list that maybe should be remembered? I think the name that really springs to mind is Sathasivam, who was around in the 30s and 40s. He lived a very colourful life. Um, he only played sort of probably 15 first-class matches, but Frank Worrell said if he had to pick a World eleven, Sathasivam would be the first player on that. Um, really? Yeah, he was just, he wowed people with his batting wherever he went. He was a really sort of fluid touch player, the best bad wicket player that um, lots say they've ever seen. And um, he was very cavalier in the way he went about things. He sort of, he'd stay up drinking and dancing all night, catch a few winks in his car and then go out to bat and uh, just put bowlers to the sword. So he is one who I think... Um, most cricket fans wouldn't be aware of, but deserves to be kind of enshrined in the game and has an amazing story. And then there was uh, Anura Tenakun, who was the captain of Sri Lanka in the 1970s. And uh, he, I think, reached a thousand unofficial test runs at an average of about 40, which given the kind of sparsity of Sri Lankan cricket then, and, you know, they were uh, the amateurism of the scene. I think that is a really incredible achievement. I don't think it's a... Uh, exaggeration to put him as world-class and uh 
couple of recent ones who I think we didn't have on this list. They're always a bit batting friendly, aren't they, best lists? And yeah. we missed out. Um, did we not have Malinga or Herath on that list? I think Malinga was on there, but Her- Herath wasn't. I think let's get him on. He deserves to be on there. The, um, he looks like a trundler, but surely one of the greatest left-arm spinners of all time. I was going to say, actually, with Herath, the, the, I, I talked about Murali being responsible for a lot of Sri Lankan's wins. You never quite know. Yeah, one will never know. If he hadn't existed, there probably would have been a Herath or somebody else come in to fill that hole, wouldn't there? And, and Sri Lanka would have won test matches anyway. So it's it's difficult to kind of besmirch Sri Lanka because they were just a one-man side because somebody else would undoubtedly have come through and taken that uh, that that job on. Yeah, you do have to say it with hypotheticals. And the spin bowling stocks in Sri Lanka are really strong. I did a little bit of coaching mm. and I remember seeing a 10-year-old who was bowling leg spinners to right-handers and off spinners to left-handers and everything was in the area where it should have been. And I thought, God, I can't do that. Um, yeah. Well, that's that 10-year-old in just probably about eight years' time will be rolling through England um, <laughs> because uh, spinners tend to queue up to do that, don't they? Um, Nicholas, <laughs> Brooks, Nicholas Brooks, your book, it's very, very good. Get it. So tell people how they can buy this fine volume and this uh, chronicle of uh, Sri Lankan cricket. Um, An Island's Eleven should be available in all good bookstores, but even easier is to pick it up online. It's on um, Amazon. You can get it same-day delivery on Prime or via Waterstones or Smiths, all the major sellers, and I would be delighted if you bought a copy. (laughs) You've done that before, haven't you? (laughs) Thank you very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure, honestly, to talk to you, and uh, really good to kind of go through some of the the old uh, players of uh, Sri Lankan and how they've come to where they are now. And hopefully we'll be around for a long time playing cricket on the world stage, Sri Lanka. So uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on, James. It's an absolute pleasure and a real privilege. And uh, thanks out there, everybody, for watching Stroke Listening. It'll be out in its normal way later on as an audio podcast. But if you've been watching along, thank you for your eyes over the last hour and six minutes, whatever it's been. I've been chatting along to uh, Nick about Sri Lankan cricket. Um, And there's more around the corner. We've got plenty of podcasts coming up, up as well over the next few weeks. So stay tuned. Keep an eye out on the at cricket underscore badger Twitter feed and you'll find out what's coming up next. Um, But until then, it's uh, been good to have you with us and we'll see you again very soon indeed. You can um, follow us, as I say, on the at cricket underscore badger Twitter feed. You can watch us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube when we do the live interviews like we've just done with Nick there as well. And uh, stay tuned, as I say, there's plenty more around the corner. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you again very soon. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.